So hi everyone, welcome to the Imprint Podcast. I'm here today with Erin Narlock from Reebok, who runs the archive. Nice to meet you, Erin, and welcome mm -hmm. to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy that you've <laughs> given me your time to be on this, to be honest, so thank you. So can you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name is Erin Narlock and I head up Reebok's Global Brand Archive in Boston. So I guess you would say I'm a brand archivist. Um, yep. Wow, okay. So what does that job entail and how did you become a brand archivist? Because I mean, <laughs> it's not your average job that you get these days. <laughs> Seriously, it isn't. So um, when I say brand archivist, I actually head up a team of experts that really focus on all of the elements of Reebok's story. So we have someone on our team, Stephanie, she manages the footwear collection, Holly manages apparel, and then I'm really responsible for how do we tell the story about Reebok from a brand perspective when we're looking to the future but taking cues from our past. Um, and a day, day to day, it could be so varied, <laughs> so I could be, you know, looking on eBay for a specific piece of ephemera or materials or shoes or what we could be doing or I specifically could be doing is researching a topic um, for an internal presentation or meeting with different collaborators. Um, so every day is different. Um, how did I get this? How did I get here? Wow, <laughs> that's a long story. I, I often tell people it took me 20 years to land this job. And that can be daunting because you definitely can start working in a brand archive after college or after graduate school, or maybe you're coming in from retail or sales. Um, so not like this traditional route, but m myself, my my career started, you know, when I worked in design in art museums uh, for a good decade and then found myself living in Europe and completed uh, the German integration course in Germany and then thought to myself, where could I take what I know from working in museums and storytelling around objects and apply it to a job where English was the primary language. Um, so I was very fortunate to work for two years at Adidas right. in their um, brand archive. And that really was my transition into working in brands while, while still utilizing that, um, that museum and archive and art background. And I don't know if you want to, I mean, I, I worked there for two years, as I mentioned, did everything from cataloging websites and website content to helping do strategic planning around how do we talk about kind of the emotional aspect of sport and of sneakers and specifically North American um, sports. And after two years, I found my way to Reebok. I've been here almost five years. Wow. I mean, that's just a phenomenal journey within itself. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't even figure about doing the whole art museum aspect to then 
you know, preserving such legacy and heritage that these brands have to this day. So, and you're still doing it, which is amazing. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, I have a degree in art and art history. I love objects. I love the things that are beautiful. I love objects of desire. I love to learn about things that are made in the built world. And this was the opportunity to find a way to get closer to design. You know, we always, I think that we generally, people are asked to reinterpret themselves at different points in their life yeah. and let go of the things that aren't serving them anymore and like take on the things you really wanna learn and grow into and the things that you you love and are passionate about and the things you believe in. And it was in all roses. Like I literally had many, many stumbles along the way. Um, but if you're true to yourself and you can have incrementally, you know, incremental steps to get you closer to where you'll be, you want to be. I mean, that's the fire, right? Yes, like, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, especially with what we're going through on a global scale, there's a lot of change ahead. So we can only hope it's for the better as well, can't we? Yeah. I'm, I'm a perpetual optimist when it comes to humanity. So peace and progress, um, and also the ingenuity of individuals. I think that um, I'm looking forward to building a better future for sure. <laughs> yeah. Look forward to watching that transition from your side of the world for sure. So keep me posted. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. So tell us about Reebok's heritage, um, sports music, and let's touch on the work Reebok has done, especially about the 1980s aerobics boom and Reagan era Ooh. and Jane Fonda. Give us a little bit of, you know, 80s flair right there. Yeah. <laughs> Let me pop a collar. Where's my pastels, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so Reebok has this incredible brand story and heritage. We actually date back to 1895 um, when J.W. Foster makes his first running spike um, outside, you know, in Bolton and Barrie um, in the northwest of England. So we that's where we start. That's like the vein that we touch when we think about why, why we were in sport to begin with. Um, and by 1958, J.W. Foster's two grandsons, Jeff and Joe Foster will break away from the family business and create what we know today to be Reebok. Reebok is the American spelling of a very small South African gazelle, a Reebok. And I couldn't think of a better name to describe the kind of brand Reebok was at the time and continues to be today. Really nimble and fast moving, um, we won't enter the US market until the late 1970s. So this running boom that kind of captures Europe in the 1960s and ultimately helps to bring us to North America in the late 1970s um, because of our built-in European credibility, that running boom will go soft and it won't have the staying power that we, we initially thought as a brand. So by the late 1970s and early 1980s, Reebok was small. We were not on the wall and we needed to find a way to innovate, to stay, essentially stay alive as a brand. 
and it, this insight will come from our first uh, running rep in California. His name is Angel Martinez. He will have this insight of a new type of workout called aerobics. And aerobics was primarily for women, um, very intense, obviously aerobic workout set yeah. to music. There was definitely a style, um, style element to the workout. And what he noticed was that women oftentimes wore running shoes that were not really built for this kind of activity, or they wore jazz shoes that had a leather bottom. And when the floor became really, really kind of wet with sweat, they could slide um, or they went in bare feet. So it was that insight that he took to um, Reebok in Boston and said, hey, you know, there's something here and we should, we should get on this. So the first sketch for the Reebok Freestyle will be done in March of 1982 and it'll enter the market in September of that year. And through time, I love that time can, can in storytelling can really change the outcome. Because yeah. I think internally we sometimes say like right from the beginning, it was super popular and it flew off the shelves like scratch, wait, what? Uh, <laughs> um, that wasn't the case, right? It, it actually took a few months for it to, to really gain steam and something that they were very um, forward thinking on was gathering the insights from instructors. So instructors became these trendsetters for small small classes and teams of women and people. So if the instructor was wearing it on Monday, maybe on the Wednesday or Friday class, other people would join that, um, join that look bandwagon. So that's how the freestyle is born. Um, and it is really very popular. So all of the success, I can say that wholeheartedly of Reebok in the United States is built on um, the back of the freestyle. And it is this women's first model. It's the following year that we'll see the XO fit come out for men. And why XO fit? Because men don't do aerobics, they do <laughs> exercise or fitness. Yeah. Um, and, and soon after the XO fit, we have the workout, we have the princess, we have all of these classic models that were really introduced first is performance shoes, but will quickly go. And by quickly, I mean by 1985, they'll go uh, to be a fashionable kind of street shoe. So you'll see it on the sidewalk in New York as often as you'll see it in the studio. But once it's a fashionable shoe to wear in your daily life, the, the colors that will be offered in the freestyle will change, right? So it won't be the the blue, white, and pink, <laughs> it will be bright red, black, bright yellow, and it will really be this expressive um, model. And it was a part of popular culture, like Jane Fonda for sure, but we'll also see it in music videos. Um, we'll see it on like Whoopi Goldberg will wear the freestyle and it becomes a part of popular culture. In the late 1980s, the first collaborator we work with is a, 
is a woman um, and she is customizing customizing freestyles and she is married to um, a doobie brother and she will um, she will really start to transform the, these freestyle shoes and she she represents these freestyle shoes totally customized and there are three models of shoes that um, that will go to market and one will be the a dog kind of style shoe um, and the other ones will a dog a cow and a bowling kind of alley shoe and her name is Kate Knutson and it was with those kind of customized shoes that we will make them available for babies kids and adults and then one-off customized shoes are off offered to um, different celebrities at the time. So Ronald Reagan, for sure, <laughs> received one of these customized shoes and um, David Letterman and Pee Wee Herman and other kind of other individuals that were part of the collective memory of the 1980s. Just want to know, do you still actually have physical copies of those shoes in the archive yeah so we do and very fortunately i can tell you that i met kate when i was out in california about a year and a half ago and she had the prototypes for each of these shoes and she she gifted them to the archive so you really get the sense of making and her artistic um yeah, her artistic vision for these shoes and how they've aged and how they continue to inspire different customizations on clean classics, like clean white classics to this day. God, that I, I would love to see those one day. I'd love to see that. That sounds so unreal. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're wild. And she often made like socks that match them, but she was a consumer of pop culture. And she also made customized clothing for different, different um, like LA scene rockers in the late, the mid to late eighties. Um, she was married. So when I said the dupe or yeah, to Keith Knudsen um, and was just part of that scene. So a lot of her clothes were customized jean jackets and just ensembles. And I feel like that for Reebok, whether they realized it or not, was this first kind of toe in the water of converging what music could do for, for sneakers um, and pop culture. And then we'll see, you know, a true convergence of Reebok's heritage in sport come in the late 1990s when um, we do a really a, a collaboration, you would say, but like a grassroots collaboration with the Hot Boys. Yeah. And we have uh, James Hardaway who works at Reebok in, in product. He will bring this insight and say, hey, uh, if you listen, the Hot Boys are talking about Reebok in their lyrics, I think it would be nice to give them some customized product, right? And so he had a manager at the time who was really receptive to this idea and through his true like visionary, 
like leadership and intuition and hard work, he will be invited to the We've Got That Fire video taping in New Orleans, right, in the Magnolia Projects. And with him, he will bring these customized classics. Um, the workout is known as the soldier in, in the American South. And he will have just different varieties of, of footwear that go from very, very minimally customized to full camo and different kind of different elements embroidered on them. And that is truly the beginning of Reebok's um, relationship and long-term relationship with music. Um, and we do have this internal video that we've digitized and that goes behind the scenes at all of these different um, like milestones within that project's inception that was made at the time. So it's really cool to watch. Well, I mean, it would be really interesting to see if that stuff would actually come back again and resurface in terms of an anniversary somewhere down the line. Just saying, you know. Just saying, just putting it out there. Putting yeah. it out there. And I think that's, you, you know, you mentioned that and it is so true when you go to these different areas, as you know, with, with sneakers, they're so, they're, there's a universal appeal to all of them, but it's really in those regions and in those cities and with the fans that they're the ones who make them live forever. And when you go to New Orleans, like Reebok's feeling is so different than if we think of what it might be in New York, right? Because it also, I think it goes hand in hand with the music and its representation within popular culture and culture in general. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. So can I just say, I love your earrings. I'm taking a side note. I just need to appreciate the earrings. For those who are not watching the actual podcast, the Reebok logo hoop earrings are amazing. Just wanted to say that. <laughs> Thanks. I felt, I felt so um, it would make the right statement today. These vector hoops are pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty cool. 100%. Thank so, you. As you mentioned in your FFF, you are leading Reebok's human rights commitment. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So uh, as I mentioned, Reebok has this incredible story, right? And it reaches back and it, it's it has this broad breadth. And um, Reebok had a human rights program that started in 1988 when we underwrote the cost of Amnesty International's Human Rights Now concert series that was headlined by Tracy Chapman, Sting, Bruce Springsteen, and others, uh, Peter Gabriel, I should mention. And it took this, this concept and idea, if you think of the 80s, of these big, big stadium style concerts globally in order to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and this was a time where Reebok kind of supported, they were not headlining, and they saw what what music and what kind of bringing awareness to human rights could do for the youth in the world. And they, they really at that time determined that they wanted to stand for something bigger than footwear, bigger than apparel and sportswear, 
and they created the Reebok Foundation and subsequently the Human Rights Awards thereafter. And this award program looked to highlight the, the youth activists and youth human rights defenders around the world um, who are working against great odds to stand up for the rights of other people. Between the years of 1988 and 2007, you know, we had over, over 80 recipients of the award from over 40 countries receive recognition. This includes students that organized the Tiananmen Square protest to Brian Stevenson, to Wanda Le, Winona LaDuke, excuse me, um, who has, you know, been long time been um, an advocate for Native American rights. And this, this, the concept of utilizing your platform, Reebok's platform for good, um, really came, came into our consciousness again over um, the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement of last year. And this was the opportunity Reebok saw to represent the awards um, in a new and different and reignited way for the world today. So we are entering a partnership with Alabama State University and the American Civil Liberties Union, along with a board of you know, external experts um, to uh, recognize three uh, activists and human rights defenders who are specifically working to dismantle what we see to be one of the greatest risks to human rights today, systemic racism. And we are looking to present the awards in June of 2021. And each of the award recipients will receive a grant from the Reebok Foundation for $100,000, as well as receive the support from our partners at the American Civil Liberties Union and with Alabama State University. So we can help a moment sustain a movement. And we really want to center the narrative of of young people who are working hard to change the world. And the reason I'm, I'm leading this commitment is much of the research comes from the archive, right? So it is something I'm you know, passionate about and I'm, it's something that I'm incredibly proud to work for a company that is using, utilizing its platform to um, do good. And I can say wholeheartedly, this is one of five initiatives at Reebok that this taking a 360 degree view on what we've seen in the United States and around the world um, and how we can make a difference and commit ourselves and memorialize these, these changes that need to happen. Um, it's not something I'm doing alone, right? <laughs> like this is internally, we have a team that of over 20 people dedicated, you know, um, along with their daytime jobs to work on this. Um, and it's incredible to see the ideas, the inclusion of different voices, the kind of this manifestation of what we want to see in the future. And it's really, it's really exciting. And I can't, I can't wait to grow these partnerships with Alabama State and the ACLU and our board, which is really, really amazing. So with, with this uh, commitment as such, is it something that Reebok will expand 
more globally or for now just just um, North America? So this is a global initiative. Right. So nothing, nothing keeps, nothing prevents kind of global, um, global, I'm sorry, nothing prevents, sorry, something popped up. Yeah. Uh, so this is open to the globe. The, we, the only restriction is that there, there is this ask that you're 30 years or younger. Um, and there are many reasons why we're doing that, but we're really trying to help younger people understand the difference between slacktivism, like changing your social media profile picture versus activism and you know, utilizing these young, you know, interrupters of the system that are making great change, utilizing them to influence in a very different way when we think of influencers, influence a younger audience and a broader audience to why, why we need to commit ourselves both as a brand, but as individuals, utilize our individual agency and create systems of collective power to, to make a difference. Okay. Just one one point on that. So it's it's you've stopped it at thirty now, so that's it. Could there be space to include one more position with no age restriction? Because some people would have been doing it by the time that they have got to that thirty point, and they are not eligible, even though they've started that legacy and history to be continued. Yeah, I think that's something that we we're definitely bringing to the board and our partners, because we do see this longitudinal, like you think of time and compression of time and people's different life experiences and paths, and that there there is this opportunity to have have a non-restrictive kind of. Um, awardee as well. So this is definitely something that I would say we'll bring to the board and is within kind of within the scope of for the future. That, that sounds good. That means I can apply. <laughs> There's hope for me. <laughs> oh, for all of us. Yeah. I'm also out of the under 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we don't look at though, so it's all right. No one needs to know. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> So this goes on to my next question. So what challenges have you faced being a woman working in a male dominant environment? Having equal a seat at the table, is it still a struggle to this day? So I will say that it being a struggle, I feel like equity within footwear representation is still, we have a long ways to go. Um, we, we've definitely seen, I've seen a shift during my time at Reebok and in sportswear brands in general. Um, I think what, what I see, uh, what I still experience as a struggle is the different interpretations of what leadership looks like. We, we should not adhere to this archetype of what makes a good leader. If it's the loudest person in the room, the most dominating, or how do we how do we include other mindsets, other ways of approaching problems um, to be seen with inherent value? And that I think is changing with time. It's a we all say it's a cultural shift, right? This idea of um, 
just different ways of leading people, different ways of presenting yourself. I am not confrontational. I can be very direct, but I'm also not going to abdicate who I am as an individual, right? The, I mean, I am a, a white woman from the Midwest and my life experiences have given me privilege that I'm very aware of and have also provided me with opportunities that I haven't seen provided to people who don't look like me. So I'm very conscious of how I want to move up in my career and move in my career in general and who I want to do that with and ensure I'm not blinded by wanting something for myself. Yeah. Like, and really allowing myself to retort, like rhetorically ask who, who isn't in the room, who should be here, who is a better representation of the need. And that I think uh, it starts with me, right? It starts with individuals being that aware. And then I think in my mind, at least, this shows true leadership. I would have to say, I see this behavior happening more in women than I do in men, no shade for, for my male colleagues, but we, I've seen much more collectivism within women and really this astute observation of who isn't in the room and the sharing, sharing the mic and sharing that spotlight. Um, but I still find that it's, it's, there's this mindset that it's easier to kind of move forward with kind of sometimes a singular point of view of what is a leader, but large in large parts, there are, there are many parts of organizations and, and within Reebok, especially where, you know, we do see more and more equity and we do see the kind of d diversity and inclusion. So it isn't just a male female thing, but we're like gender, but we're looking at like all those diversity dimensions as we move, we move into the future. And like, we have to, right? Because, really? because I, I, my, like what I think individually, as I mentioned, my, my lived experience is less important than others, right? And that takes a lot of um, self-awareness to just say, I'm not the person you need to hear from, or let me introduce you to someone that you might not know. And that vulnerability, like vulnerability, I guess you, you might say is, is something that people I've seen people just started starting to get comfortable with. Yeah, there's a long way to go with that. Having all these conversations with people that I've had recently, that it's a, it's a struggle to even be that vulnerable. Um, yeah, so we're still in the new era of that. Yeah, sure. and I would say that, so I'm, the vulnerability I'm truly speaking from, I'm, I'm a white woman, I maybe I have the opportunity to be more vulnerable than my other, my colleagues, right? And to even understand this, how much I give, how much I tell versus how much I listen to or, or don't ask for additional context on, like it's not, this balance is, is a work in process. And I think it takes, with anything, it takes building relationships that like mean something. Yes. Not like, not curiosities to, 
to feel better about oneself, right? Or whatever, but truly building these relationships and knowing that ultimately the output from constructive relationship building and ensuring that there's diverse and included voices around the table is a better brand, is a better product, is a better campaign, is a better film, right? It's myopathy will not help any of us. <laughs> like, um, wow, I feel like I just went on a rant. So That's absolutely fine, Matt. And it's it's all it's all valid. I mean, as I've said to you, I've given my voice and I've not been seen as an equal. So I've decided to do take my you know, as you mentioned, change your path for the direction that you want to lead. And that is what I'm doing now. So don't worry about what you just said, because it's all very valid. <laughs> yeah. it's, very, it's very valid. But um, yeah, vulnerability for sure is definitely uh, a new a new strain of what we have to deal with, especially moving forward. Because yeah. I find women still are still not strong enough or feel comfortable enough to be that vulnerable within the industry that we we are connected to so yeah i mean i see it happen all the time where the attribution of kind of passion or emotion can be reinterpreted seven ways to sunday for yeah. a woman versus when a when a man might present himself differently, right? And I think the criticism and the excuses given um, to, to, to women especially, it is, it, is, it is sometimes confusing. Like you feel like you play by the rule book and you, and you don't see the same outcome. So then you kind of reflect on yourself and say, what have I done wrong? instead of saying what's wrong with the organization or what's wrong with this team. And I think that's something that I've really grown in reflecting on um, in the last few years is this concept that it, you know, I can bring my self-awareness, my vulnerability, I can give 110%, but in the end, it's on the organization and it's on that culture and my colleagues to, to see that value. I don't wanna perpetually represent myself in, in ways that could be exhausting to what I have to give, right? It's like this. I totally understand. <laughs> I feel like in that Dr. Seuss book, right? Where it's like, I can't remember which Dr. Seuss book, but at one point, like he's, he's balancing the, the, the fishbowl, the cane, the hat, the dog, the, you know. Oh, and I know which one you're talking about. The title escapes me, but yeah. Yeah, there's, there's only so much that individuals can do uh, alone, right? And they need the support and, and um, that's, that's evident. I would say my takeaway is understanding when it isn't you and when it is where you are yeah, and then yeah. making the decision, as you mentioned earlier, to, to find that path that makes sense for you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And this is why we're here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, this goes on to a slightly lighter note. What would you say is your favorite collaborations that have been out over the years? Yeah. So from so I do have a list because thinking about it, there are reasons why I enjoy different 
collaborations. Yeah. So I specifically at Reebok really enjoyed that it's a man's world um, crossed out collaboration with the whole like different group of female collaborators. I also just really enjoyed the origin story of that collaboration and working alongside of many of those women that I personally um, like been a fan of and seeing that come to life. I've also enjoyed Reebok and Garb Store collaboration. So I think specifically for me, the Inside Out one is, is maybe my favorite. Um, Ian Paley is someone that I've had the opportunity to work with when we did four back-to-back pop-ups um, in Seven Dials in 2017 and 18. So that, that one, I think I really like. And then I'm going to say <laughs> a collaboration um, on the Instapump Fury, the Gutatama collaboration. And this is more because I kind of also like to be a little quirky and a little funny. So the Lazy Egg is a really fun collaboration. And I, I have the shoes, they're, they're on the shelf, they're in a box. I had to you know, purchase them from Japan and have them um, sent to, to the US. But I feel like there's going to be a mom moment where I'm gonna just like rock those and super embarrass my kids. And also like kind of love it at the same time. <laughs> And I then, think you might have to mentally prepare them for that one just so yeah. they don't get a heart attack or anything. <laughs> right? No, but like almost a teenager boy. Um, then the Maison Margiela, obviously, I think that one is just an incredible experience also to work in and with such such an incredible house, fashion house. And then Pierre Moss, I think if you think about the future and reinterpreting Reebok uh, in an aesthetic that seems like it's always been, yet it hasn't quite been imagined. Yeah. I, think, I think of Kirby and his team as it relates um, to that collaboration. It's definitely gonna be a big journey with Piers Moss for sure. I, don't, I still don't think a lot of people are ready for that. <laughs> there, are some, there are some looks, but the footwear specifically, I think it's, really wearable and a really a really different approach to Reebok footwear um, that just it feels Reebok and it also feels like future Reebok so yeah. really appreciate those beyond reimagination yeah for sure. <laughs> for sure so what direction would you like to see Reebok go in the future regarding design footwear and innovation could we see some rare classics resurface yeah, I think there's definitely re, uh, rare classics resurfacing. I, I always think when the time's right and you'll see that happen, I think judiciously and like with that curatorial eye that less is more in that space. Um, I, I really love elevated materials on Reebok Classics. I like that garment leather, right? They're just a beautiful, creamy, like smooth, comfortable, clean classics. Those, those models to me will, will omni be present and it's the materials that they use that make me the most excited. And then I think for design and footwear and innovation, you know, knowing who we've been as a brand over the last 
20 years and thinking about where we could go. Um, I think that that we'll just have to see. I don't know if I can can read the crystal ball, even though having such a view of the past, I definitely can see where cues could be taken. But Reebok will always be the this brand for fans and and also this challenger brand that will kind of buck tradition sometimes while keeping these classics on the shelves and on the feet of many people. Yes, of course. Well, yes, definitely a big change in new era for Reebok for sure. So with Kirby's direction in the forefront, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, this is coming to my last question for you and for the listeners out there. So what advice would you give an aspiring archivist historian? Uh, I would say be tenacious and make your, make your opinions heard. Always back it up with evidence. I, I would say don't assume that you wouldn't be the right person for a job or that this brand wouldn't be interested in having your, your talents and your expertise. I would say, do your research, right? Look and well, do that contextual research and represent it. And I would say, just really have faith and believe in yourself and believe in what value you're bringing to an organization and what's the ROI, right? What's the return on the investment? I mean, having someone who is really professional when it comes to how to create an archive that's accessible and can help people derive meaning for the future, it's invaluable to many brands. So be tenacious, take that internship um, if you can. And I would have to say internships at brands pay, unlike in the museum field when it was often like no pay. Um, yeah, and just reach out, reach out to other archivists who are working in the field, hit them up on LinkedIn. I would have to say in all of um, sportswear and fashion, I have found that there is a community of brand historians and archivists that we will meet with one another. We will share what we know, no trade secrets, but what works. And that, I think that's really invaluable because we can't, we can't do this alone, right? And if we have value seen in other brands and their archives, it only makes the case for our own. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you very much for your time today, Erin. It's been informative, a lot of throwback and memory things and guidance for the future. Oh, Shernay, thank you for having me so much. I've enjoyed it, it's, it's fun and, even as a person working in the archive, I'm always looking forward to what will happen in the future. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Speak Bye. to you soon. Bye. Bye.